This morning we continue in a high and holy place or on holy ground, as I said uh, last week, as we continue to look this morning at the prayer of our Lord in John 17. Uh, the section of scripture that we're looking at is printed uh, in your bulletins, or certainly you can follow along in your Bibles if you brought them with you. Last week, we began looking at this prayer that Jesus prays before his arrest, and we looked at the first five verses, and in those first five verses, we saw how there is really one singular petition, one singular request that is part of those verses, and it is with respect to our Lord Jesus saying, Father, glorify your Son, or Jesus saying very plainly, glorify me. And we looked at that and tried to understand the passage and saw in looking at it that the prayer, the request that Jesus made had a particular object in mind. It didn't stop with Jesus saying, glorify me because I'd like to be glorified once again and being glorified is a nice thing. Instead, the purpose for which Jesus prayed it was so that he, as the incarnate Son glorified, could continue to glorify his Father. Glorify me so that I can glorify you. And when we looked at it even one step and farther, in addition to that, we, saw, we asked the question, well, how? How does the Son, the incarnate Son glorified, then glorify the Father? The answer was by giving eternal life to those whom the Father had given to him. And so Jesus has those ends in mind as he makes that prayer. It seems to me that as we look at this, you can kind of notice, and I think this is perhaps unsurprising to us, you can kind of notice in this prayer a parallel between this prayer of Jesus and the themes and even the structure of the Lord's Prayer as well. It begins with an opening concern for the glory of God, like the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. It continues with thy kingdom come, and thy kingdom come is the extension of the gospel into all of the world. And thy will be done is captured here in the idea of Jesus basing the entire prayer saying, Father, I've done your will. I have accomplished all that you gave me to do. And so I think there's a parallel in the structure between the two that frankly continues into our section today. When we read, or when I get ready to read the verses here in just a moment as we continue along, the, the object shifts just a little bit from Jesus being concerned with his glory for the sake of the Father to now a specific prayer for the 11 remaining disciples at this point. And in this specific prayer, as I said, I think the Lord's Prayer can continue to be seen as Jesus is really praying for these 11 in a way that says, give them their daily bread, forgive debts as they forgive one another, keep them united, is what it sounds like, keep them one in this prayer, and then deliver them from evil. And that's going to be, that's of course specifically in the Lord's Prayer, and it's going to be specifically in our section as well. I think the parallel is there between the two. Jesus prays the way he taught us to pray, which shouldn't be that surprising to us when we think about it. But let me read this for us now, and then we're going to jump right into 
trying to understand once again what uh, Jesus is praying here and glean for it for ourselves as well. So give attention to this portion of God's holy word being able to overhear a prayer between the Son and his Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you for these words that are set before us today. We thank you that they were prayed by our Lord. We thank you that they were recorded by John. And we thank you that they have been preserved for us. And now, Spirit of God, we pray that you would quicken them unto us, that they would cut deep into us, and that we would rejoice to see such a Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Last week, when we got into the text, we asked three questions of those first five verses. We asked, what is Jesus praying for? What's the specific request? And then we considered, what is the basis of the request? What's the foundation on which he bases his request? And to what end was he petitioning the Lord? Why, in other words, was he praying? Those three questions are going to serve us well this week also. And we're going to start just by reversing the order from what we did last week with what is the basis of the prayer that Jesus is making in this portion of John 17. And we're starting with the basis because that's basically what is contained in the verses that begin this section, roughly verses 6 through 11. 
And in an attempt to summarize what we'll call the basis of the prayer or the grounds for the request for, uh, that Jesus is making in this section, I want to use two words, two words that are sprinkled throughout the Gospel of John and certainly present uh, in this section of Scripture. And the words are give and receive. Okay, to understand the basis on which Jesus is saying, you have to be able to appreciate what he is saying about giving and receiving. So the gospel is a gift. Right? Faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift. It is a gift that has been given from and by the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And we ask, if we ask the question, well, why does God give such a gift of salvation? The answer is because of his love and his grace. Why does God give? He gives because of his love and his graciousness. Think, for example, of the most famous verse in the Gospel of John, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. What was the motivation for the gift? That he loved the world. Or let's step out of John for just a moment and put it in the words of Paul, again, words that we know well from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, by God's graciousness, by God's unmerited favor to you, for by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. So whether you're talking in John language, John saying it's love that motivated God to give, or whether you're talking in Pauline language, who would also say love, and Paul would say, listen, it's the grace of God by which he has given to us the gift of salvation. It is the gift of God. And as Jesus turns to pray for the remaining disciple, he reminds his father that the very ones for whom he is praying are the ones that the Father has given to him. As I'm making, Lord, these prayers, I am praying, Father, for the ones that you gave to me, and I too have given to them. So we're looking at right now the idea of giving, and I want us to see this clearly in the text as well. So look at the verses with me. The Father has given Jesus the people, in particular the 11 right now. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Okay, gift language all over this. And the Lord gave the people. Verse 9 says essentially the same exact thing. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me for they are yours. Okay? They're yours. You gave them to me. In addition to giving the people, Jesus says other things that the Father has given as well. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Everything is from you. All that I have is from you. And it gets more specific in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. So catch here, what I want us to see is all of the quality of giving and in the first place that the Father has done. The Father has given to the Son the people. The Father has given to the Son everything, and the, the, the disciples realize that. 
And the Father has given to the Son all of the words that the Son speaks. All of these things are gifts from the Father to the Son. But it is, of course, not in the character of the Son of God to hoard the gifts that have been given to him. But instead, it is the character of the Son to share the gifts that have been given to him by the Father. And so, the Son has in turn, having been a recipient of those things from his Father, given them to the disciples. And essentially what the Son has given to the disciples is the revelation of the Father. That's, that's the gift. The gift is that they now see the Father through the Son. Jesus, in, in, if we want to put it in gospel terms, Jesus has given to them the gift of sight, the gift of hearing, and the gift of comprehension. The ability to understand, to appreciate, to see, to hear these things, and to understand that they and he come from God the Father, the source of every good and perfect gift. Jesus specifies this in, in, in the verses that are before us. Look at verse 6, for example. I have manifested your name to your people. In verse 12, he says, I have kept them in the name which you have given to me. The Son, by manifesting the name, shows the character of his Father, shows the power of God. Jesus says in verse 8 that in addition to having manifested the name, I have given them the words that you gave me. In verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. So the son takes the things that the father has given to him and gives them to the disciples. And so the first basis of the prayer is that all that the father has given to the son, the son has given to these people. So we must understand the gift quality. The gift quality is what allows Jesus to pray for these 11 specifically. The second thing that we see here that is the basis of the prayer is that the gift has been received. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. All of them, all, all the ones that he gives to me will come to me. And the idea of will come to me or the idea that we see here is the idea of reception. And in our passage, Jesus gives testimony to the faith, to the fact that indeed the disciples have received the gift that was given. That's pretty extraordinary that he does that. We know the status of the disciples at this point. Their faith is, is young, we'll call it that. It's, it's certainly not fully matured at this point. And yet Jesus, our Lord, gives testimony to it. Verse 6, he testifies saying, they have kept your word. The end of it. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. In verse 7, he says, now they know. They've kept your word. They know, and then in verse 8, we find the, the, the statement that summarizes all of it. He says, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. 
Hey, they, they kept your word. They know your word. They received your word. And as a result, and we could just continue to go through uh, verse 8, they've come to know the truth and they have believed that you sent me. Now recall for a moment the beginning of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 11 through 12 of John chapter 1. In that passage there, John says that he came to his own, that is the Lord Jesus came to his own, but his own people did not, what? His own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The language that is there in the introduction to the book, John 1, uh, 11 and 12, comes to be the basis of the prayer that Jesus is making here. Jesus says, this is what has taken place. The giving has taken place and the receiving has taken place as well. And so that then is the basis of this prayer. It's that it's both a gift and that it is received. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, Father, these 11, these 11 men who are before me right now, whose foibles, faults, sins, and character flaws are well known to me and well known to you, these 11 are your people. They are yours. And they're not only yours, Father, they're mine because you gave them to me, and everything that is yours is mine as well. Lord, hear my prayer, because these people, these 11, bear your name. They're ours. And when something is yours, you care for it. You care for it in a way that you don't care for things that are not yours. And so what Jesus is saying is, Father, they belong to you. This is very akin to praying in the Old Testament. We're not going to look at it now, but you could think of how Moses intercedes for the people after the golden calf, or I can't resist uh, Daniel chapter 9, which says this same idea as Daniel concludes a prayer, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act, delay not. Why? For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. They're yours. They're yours, Father, so hear my prayer for them now. That's the basis. All right, so we come to the text then and we ask, what is the prayer request itself? And last week, when we looked at the first five verses, we saw that there's really essentially only one petition that is in the first five verses. Glorify me, glorify the Son. This week, we have a lengthier section, and yet there are only three specific prayer requests, petitions, that are found in this section. They are, verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. And verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Okay, so those three are the petitions that Jesus is making. Holy Father, keep them in your name, keep them from the evil one, sanctify them, in the truth. And what I'd like to do is group the first two together and then we will consider the third. So grouping the first two, keep them in your name, keep them from the evil one. These are prayers for these men that are prayers 
of preservation, prayers of security. Lord, keep them safe. Keep them protected. Jesus wants to see the protection of this band of brothers, of this nascent new covenant family. To this point, he has been with them. And since he has been with them, he has been able to protect them, to guard them, to keep them himself by taking the blows, if you will, upon himself, by becoming and being the focal point for any attacks. So if anybody came against the disciples, if anybody had a complaint about the disciples, it didn't land finally upon the disciples themselves. Instead, it landed upon the Lord. Why do your disciples do this? It was for the Lord to protect and defend his people. He's been, to this point, if you will, uh, the heat shield for his disciples. Now, we all are familiar, I trust, with the idea of a heat shield, right? Think of a, the, the, the picture, the image of a capsule from space returning to Earth and the absolute essential necessity of there being a heat shield to be able to deal with all of the friction that is created as that capsule re-enters the atmosphere. Well, Jesus has been able to be that until now. With the shield now removed, the friction and the resistance will hit these 11. The heat will build up upon them because they are still in the world. Look at verse 11 with me. And I am no longer in the world. Uh, by the way, just parenthetically here, a note to go along with last week. This is another proleptic uh, statement by Jesus. He is still in the world. He's referring here to after the cross, but he's looping it in by saying, I am no longer in the world, end parentheses now, but they are in the world. They are still in the world. And there's atmospheric resistance in this world to the gospel. And so Jesus is praying for them. On a small scale, uh, I think this is easy to imagine even if you haven't had kids or haven't had kids uh, up to this point. It is kind of like sending your kids off to college. You have been able to be, as a parent, for many years, the heat shield. And when things got bad, you were able to be there and you were able to deflect some of that. You were able to help with some of that. And kind of when you send kids into college, that heat shield is being removed and exposure to the world is taking place. And that's what Jesus is praying for specifically here. He knows that the forces of the flesh and the world and the evil one will do everything possible to, to take this band and rip them apart from one another, get them isolated, get them fighting with one another, and steal their joy. And we've already seen it in the gospel. We have seen their competitiveness, their jockeying for position in the kingdom of God. We have seen that the world hates them. We've seen already the desertion of, G of Judas in this. It was according to the word of God, but Jesus brings it up. Illustrative, illustrative of the fact that he's protected all of them except for the one that was assigned to perdition, the one that was assigned to destruction, but it shows us the threats that are against them. 
We've even seen Jesus say to Peter, Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you. Already, before the crucifixion, Satan wants Peter. I want that one out. And Jesus says, I prayed for you. I'm, I'm the shield. I am praying for you. And now, here in this passage, he prays for them all. And what he's praying is, Father, keep this family united and protected in the power of your name. When I was with them, I gave them your name. I put your name upon them. I formed them into a family. I united them together, and the forces of this world, their flesh and the devil, are going to try to pull them apart. Lord, keep them in the name. Guard them from the evil one. The evil one is always lurking about, prowling about, looking for someone to devour, looking for someone he can pick off from the flock to get him out. And Jesus prays. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, does an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. And one of the questions, of course, that it asks is, what are we praying for when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? And here's the answer that it gives. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attaching and attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and unsurprisingly, it is how Jesus is praying for his disciples because he knows, he knows that the evil one is after them. He knows that the flesh is there. He knows that, the, that Satan is trying to pick off people from the flock. So, those first two petitions then, those first two peti petitions, keep them in the name, keep them from the evil one, are prayers for protection. The third petition that Jesus makes here is different. And that third petition is in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, to understand that, let me just jump down to verse 19 as well uh, for a moment. Verse 19 reads this way. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Just so you know, uh, sanctified and consecrate are the exact same word. Our ESV translates them as two different words in this place, but let me read it as it, it actually is. So 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. 19, and for their sake I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So what's he praying for specifically here? To sanctify is to make holy, to consecrate, to set apart. And, and while it obviously, and, and it obviously includes an ethical and a moral component to it, right? It obviously includes what we're talking about to sanctify, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
The context here seems to be a little bit more Old Testament-like in the idea of setting apart, you could set apart, and we've talked about this before, an object, sanctify it, make it holy. You could set apart a nation, the nation of Israel, set apart, sanctified. You, you could set apart an individual, a prophet or a priest or a king, and sanctify them, set them apart as well. And that seems to be the idea here. The prayer is to separate and to saturate these 11 men with truth. Lord, take these, Father, take these 11 men that I've trained, that I've spoken your words to, and now consecrate them, separate them with truth. Saturate them with truth. Why? Because I have a mission for them. And the accomplishment of that mission requires that these be uniquely men of truth, men who are consecrated in truth. The mission is described in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is an Isaiah-like consecration. That's why I had us read that great passage from Isaiah 6 earlier. That is that for which Jesus is praying. Lord, take these, like you took Isaiah, put the hot coal to their lips, send them in truth. Let them speak my words of truth. Let them understand the words that I have given to them. Had Jesus only desired, and this is now to kind of put the three petitions together, had Jesus only desired that the disciples be preserved and secure and protected, which would be the first two positions, uh, petitions, then he could have done that by taking them out of the world with him. Now, I don't mean to be morbid with that, but to take them into heaven. If you want to protect this young family that you've made, these 11 men that you have made, then take them out of the world with you because they will certainly be safe and protected in the eternal kingdom. Or, if not taking them out of the world, he could have given to them protective instructions. He could have told them about how they need to go out in the wilderness or how they need to go to the top of a mountain and isolate themselves from the pressures, the hostilities of the world and be secure in this community. But this is not the intention, and that this is not the intention is clarified by this third petition. Sanctify them in the truth. I have a mission for them. The disciples haven't been sadly or neglectfully left behind in the world. They have been stationed in the world. They have been deployed unto the world as, like Jesus, emissaries. Emissaries of the good news or of the word or of the truth, however you want to say it. And this brings us to our last question, and that is, to what end was Jesus praying? Why was he praying this in particular for them? And here's the answer. Because these 11 men, the men who were around when Jesus was making this prayer, 
And with these 11 men, the addition of Matthias in Acts chapter 1 and the addition of Paul, they will be the men who lay the foundation, the one foundation for the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now, we Presbyterians believe in the priesthood of all believers. And historically, we have rejected hierarchical forms of church government, and we have emphasized the communion of the saints and the common family status of the church as brothers and sisters together, as sons and daughters of the kings. Most of the time, this is good, it is right, and it is biblical to do this. But there are also times when that can lead us astray every once in a while. And, and such would be the case if in our flattening amongst ourselves and amongst the people of God, we failed to see the unique stature and authority and calling and gifting that belong to these men. Who we are today as the church rests not only upon them because they were before us. Uh, in other words, we often talk about the founding fathers of our nation and the fact that they were there at the beginning and they were part of the founders of the framework. We talk about the fact that we are who we are as a nation because of what they did. That's true of the disciples, but that's not actually the whole truth about the nature of the apostles or the disciples. It is because they were uniquely set apart, consecrated in the truth for the work that God gave them to do. Now, as this prayer reaches its conclusion next week, we'll see that Jesus look in prayer beyond them to others who will believe, namely, he'll look at us. But at this point, the focus is squarely on them. In order for the church to be built in this world, these men, these 11 men, and then with the other two, those 13, they must be protected and consecrated in truth unto mission. And the mission that was set before them is not easy. And we should not underestimate it. Can you imagine if we somehow explained to the disciples at this point what the church was going to look like 2,000 years after this was said to them, after this took place. It would be overwhelming. They could not imagine how all of that was going to take place. This mission that has been entrusted to them, sent as the Lord was sent, has a dynamic tension in it that they felt, and we feel it as well. And this is what we feel so much when we read this particular passage of Scripture. They were men from the world, right? They were born in the world. They were men from the world. They were familiar with the world. They were, if you will, common folk, right? They did jobs. Well, not many of us are fishermen per se, but they did jobs that were common jobs like many of us do as well. They were men from the world. And yet by the gift and the call of the war Lord, they became men not of the world. Verse 14, 
articulates this. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world. They're men of the world, and now they're not men of the world, and therefore they don't feel at home in the world. They, they don't fit in the world. They used to fit in the world just fine, but they don't fit in the world anymore. The world is hostile to them. And yet, here they are. Here we are in the world, right? Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And they're not merely in the world. They're sent into the world. They're not just there biding their time until Jesus returns. They're in the world for the sake of the world, that the world may know that Jesus comes from the Father, full of glory, grace, and truth. And that's a tough tension. And those men felt it, and we feel it, and Jesus felt it and experienced it, and Jesus knew that they're going to feel this same tension as well. We all feel it. You're set apart, and yet you're stationed in. So not of the world, and yet in the world, sent into the world. If you're a child of God, you can't help but feel the dissonance of being in this world. On the one hand, you love this world that the Father has created. We sing about it. We delight in it. We praise God for it. We like daffodils. We like friends. We like good conversation. We love what God has created, and yet the world is painful, and the world is fallen, and there's a dissonance to this. And if you're a child of God, you can't help but longing for the end of this world and the coming of the world to come, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. You long to be, in that sense, out of this world. Paul is, of course, the one who expressed this tension for himself, but really for all of us as well as we read it. We read it in Philippians chapter 1. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. That's the tension that exists. Jesus is aware that that's the tension that exists. It existed for them. It exists for us as well. And pastorally, I can't tell you, well, this is how you get over that. This is how you live smoothly within that tension. The tension exists. That's why Jesus is praying. That's why you feel it. That's why it doesn't feel right right now. It won't ever feel right until the return of Jesus. Why? Because the world's in hostility to us. It's in hostility to our Lord. It's in hostility to us. We're not of it, and yet here we are in it, and not merely biding our time in it, but sent into it for the sake of the Son, for the sake of the glory of the name. 
Jesus prayed for the disciples well aware of the tension and yet committed to and committing them to the mission and the care of the Lord while within that mission. We are here today, gathered together, worshiping the Lord because the Father heard that prayer. The Father heard the prayer of the Son for the protection and the mission of those 11. And here we are, the apostolic church. The ones who have been forged together as the answer to this. If these 11 aren't protected, this gospel is written by one of these 11, of course, who are here, for whom the prayer is being made, for whom it is offered. We are saturating ourselves right now in truth, in the word of God, because that one was himself consecrated, sanctified in the truth, so that we have the truth of the word of God. We're not apostles. We are apostolic. And so since we're apostolic, we imitate. We embrace in our own lives the gospel. We're thankful for the protection of the Father and the mission of the Son by the power of the Spirit that now belongs to us. Next week, we'll turn one more time in this prayer to see Jesus praying for us. In the meantime, let's pray. Father, thank you for hearing the prayer of your Son. And in hearing his prayer, protecting, providing for those men who by your grace accomplished the mission that you gave to them in laying a foundation once for the church wherein you are glorified and whom you love. Thank you for preserving them. And thank you for continuing the apostolic church unto our day so that we can know salvation and rejoice in you. Lord, protect us, consecrate us unto your service in this world. And we pray this in your name. Amen.